Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you and we praise you every day, Father. Every breath we take, every moment that we are awake, every experience of life, for we know that you are always with us. We know that you are our Lord, our keeper, our God, and we acknowledge you, Lord. Our knees do already bow to you, and our tongues do already confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, receive today our service and our worship of you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, no, I did not skip the gospel. Uh, today we do things a little different. Um, it's something that I learned many, many years ago from another priest friend of mine who shared with me one day how much more fitting it is to conclude the service with the Passion Gospel than to have it in the middle of the service as we normally do. And I, I looked at, uh, at the gospel, and, and I looked at how the service flowed, and I agreed with him wholeheartedly. And so for many years now, we have moved the reading of the gospel, which is the passion of our Lord, we have moved it to the end of the service. And you will see how it all fits better in, in that way. Uh, today, we celebrate Palm Sunday. We celebrate the day in which Jesus Christ uh, entered uh, triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. And that's how the service begins, but that is not how the service ends. The service ends totally different than the way we began it. Now, as we began Lent this year, as we began the 40 years of Lent, which uh, seems like a long time ago, uh, 40 days, 40 days, not 40 years, 40 days, uh, 40 days ago, uh, one of the things I did as, as we began uh, the season of Lent, uh, I think it was the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, uh, I gave you a small gift, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, I gave you all a small gift. It was a small little booklet. It was a small little booklet, and it was titled The Easter Code. The Easter Code. And one of the things I loved about this booklet, and the thing that attracted me to this, to this booklet, and that's why I bought it and gave it to all of you, is that it gives us a code word for each day during Lent. We were to read a brief meditation, and the brief meditation would conclude with a code word. And that code word was for us to remember it all day for that one day. To remember it, and in remembering the code word, 
we would remember what the meditation was about. And so every day during Lent, we have had a code word, and I, if you didn't follow it, if you didn't use the book, uh, please don't feel guilty about it. That's not my intention. Uh, but I, I just, I, I loved it. I loved it, and I'm, I'm still uh, following it each morning. And um, today, for Palm Sunday, when I looked at the booklet in my meditation, actually a couple of days ago, I was looking at it, the code word for today is tears, tears. And it called us to remember, it called us to remember that this day, Palm Sunday, was not only about joy and triumphal entries. Palm Sunday wasn't just about joy and triumphal entries and cries of Hosanna and palm branches being waved all through town and all through the hills and, and those things. Today wasn't just an excitement over the coming of Messiah and expectations of triumph and liberty and freedom. The day was about more than that because people got caught up in the situation. And people got caught up in the things that were going on. Number one, Passover was approaching, so there was already a great deal of excitement in the Jewish people that they would be celebrating the Passover of our Lord when God came and interfered with Pharaoh and all the forces of evil that held the Israelites, the Hebrews, captive and set them free through the last of the plagues. And, and, and he passed over the house of the Jews, of the Hebrews, and did not touch the Hebrew firstborn. But when it came to the house of Pharaoh, of the animals and the people and the servants, the Lord punished the hardness of heart of Pharaoh by killing the firstborn. So the Jewish people have always celebrated the day that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and passed over their homes and their families and their firstborn. Not only was already that excitement mounting, upon them, but there was another excitement. There, they heard about this man, this rabbi, this messianic figure who just days before had resurrected a man named Lazarus over in the city of Bethany. And they, having heard about it, they were coming from Jerusalem, and those that were coming into Jerusalem kind of sandwiched Jesus and his disciples between them in the excitement of Passover and the excitement of the news, and all of that was going on. They had the great expectation that perhaps Jesus would be that Messiah that would once again liberate the people of Israel. 
So there was a great deal of excitement and people were being caught on. And I can imagine people not knowing what's going on, but they asked, what's going on? Oh, Jesus is coming into town. And they joined the crowd and everybody's shouting and waving branches and there's excitement. But I can only imagine that in the heart of Jesus, that excitement wasn't shared. That Jesus fully understood that every step that that donkey took closer to Jerusalem, he was not just closer to Jerusalem, he was closer to Calvary. He was closer to the cross. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that his visit to Jerusalem this year would be his last. In fact, Jesus had been predicting at least three times in the gospel. He tells his disciples after leaving Galilee, he tells them that the Son of Man, which is his title, would be betrayed and would be beaten and would be scourged, and would be condemned, and would die. And he's been predicting it and giving it to them, even though they don't fully understand. Jesus fully knew what this journey was about. Jesus is very aware of the prophecies in the Old Testament. We just read Isaiah 53. That speaks of the servant of God whose face was so marred he couldn't even be recognized. Who took all the bruising and took all the things for the sins of mankind. Isaiah 52, 53. We just read about that. And Jesus knew the prophetic word. And he knew he was the fulfillment of all that God had prepared. Jesus was fully aware of the mission the Father had entrusted him. Jesus was fully aware that he had come into the world to die. So everybody may have been celebrating as this throng of people entered Jerusalem. But I just wonder how the heart of Jesus was heavy. He had he had come to fulfill his mission. The mission of the death of the Holy One of God. The death of the God incarnate. God in the flesh was dying for those in the flesh. God, the immortal, eternal, everlasting, almighty, infinite God was willing to die. And he was dying for the life of sinners. He was dying so that sinners could have life. And not death. He was substituting himself. For us. So the day is not just about celebration. It's a day also of 
tears. In fact, just before Jesus entered Jerusalem, Luke tells us in chapter 19 of Luke that Jesus stood at the Mount of Olives, which is across from the temple, and he looked at the temple and at the city, and we're told that he wept. He wept. Tears running down his cheeks. Luke 19 tells us, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, that you would understand the cost of peace. Oh, that you would understand the cost of peace between God and you, the cost of peace between people. Oh, that you would understand. And he wept. So the day is a day of tears. And perhaps before today is over, we ourselves will feel like weeping. We ourselves will feel like weeping for what is to come on Monday, Thursday, which is just this coming Thursday, the night in which Jesus celebrated his last peace, his, his last meal, his last Passover, followed immediately by Good Friday, and then by the darkest of Saturdays the Jewish people and the disciples had ever experienced. We will end this day with the reading of the Passion of our Lord. And I pray that it be as moving and powerful to you to just imagine what this day would have been like. Yes, I know that Easter's coming. I know that a lot of people kind of want to bypass Good Friday. We don't want to deal with death. We don't want to deal with suffering. We just want to get to the victory. But I want you to understand that Easter has no victory and Easter has no power unless we go through Good Friday. I want you to understand that Easter is not the day of atonement. Easter did not win the victory over sin. He won the victory over death. But the victory over sin was won on the cross when Jesus took on our sins, fully paid for all the sins and the consequences of eternal sin. He paid them on Good Friday. So don't rush to Easter without acknowledging, receiving the power of what God was doing in his son hanging from a cross. So today is not a day just of victory and joy and palm branches. It is also somewhat a day of tear. And so that's why the booklet gives the code word for today as tears. But on the other side, the code word for the entrance into Jerusalem would have to be Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna actually means, I don't know how many of you would know exactly what the word Hosanna means. 
But the word Hosanna actually means in Hebrew, save us now. Save us now. It was a call for salvation and deliverance. Save us now. And it actually comes from Psalm 118. Now, 118 belongs to a series of psalms that are, that are called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is where we get the word hallelujah, which means Hallel Jah, Yahweh. Hallel Jah, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. These psalms are the praise psalms and praise songs of Israel. This group is also called the Ascension Psalms. Ascension as in ascending. Because the pilgrims that are coming to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, they normally would have not come straight from Galilee and passed through Samaria. Samarians, Samaritans and, and Jewish and Hebrew people were not really friendly toward each other. And so they would normally cut across the Jordan on the east, come on the other side, cross Jericho, and they first have to go up a hill, which is where Bethany is, and it's where Bethsaida is, or Bethrach is, and then there's a Mount of Olives. In the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And across from the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple, but in between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, there is something called the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley. So what happens is, as you come from the east, you come to the Mount of Olives, you have to go down into the Kidron Valley, and then you ascend into the Mount of God. You ascend into Mount Zion. You ascend into a range of mountains there called Mount Moriah. And I would have to teach you and take you to Abraham giving his son and killing him in Mount Moriah, which is the same mountain pretty much that Jesus died. But in that aspect of ascending into the mountain of God, into the temple of God, they would sing these psalms. Psalms of praise, psalms of ascension, psalms of celebration. And part of Psalm 118 is a song to the Lord, deliver us. Save us now, O Lord. Save us. And they would sing because the expectation of being saved by God and being redeemed and being liberated again from the Roman people was always present in Israel at this time. And so they take from Psalm 118 these words, Hosanna to the King, the Son of David that is coming. Hosanna, very messianic psalm. Very messianic psalm. In fact, I think there is another map that I prepared for you. I wanted you to have an idea that's a view of the temple in Jerusalem from, it's, it's, it's painted uh, from the Mount of Olives. And you can see kind of the Kidron Valley there uh, below. Now, this past week, 
As I am thinking and preparing for my sermon to you today, and I am myself seeking to understand more and know more, I happen to come across a magazine that I receive every month. I receive this magazine every month, um, and I don't always read the whole magazines. I actually subscribe to more magazines than I can read, okay, whether archaeological or, or, or whatever. Uh, I really receive more magazines than I can read, um, plus all the books that I want to keep reading all the time. I usually have four or five books started and, and, and so on. But I, this time I, I looked at this magazine um, and and I, one, one article caught my attention. It was an article on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I thought, ah, let me read it and see if I can get some more learning about it and some points that I can share with you today. Actually, the article that I read was so good and so moving to me that I chose not to borrow from it, but to actually, I wanted to share a portion of the article with you. And I wanted to do this because I am always against any form of plagiarism. I don't want to appear that this came from me when it did not. I always want to be as honest as I can in my teaching and my preaching. The only failure I have is I, didn't co I did not copy the name of the author so that I could quote it to you in his name. But nevertheless, this is what he wrote, and I wanted to share it with you. He wrote this. He said, Dust was swirling across the scorching desert as a rebel rabbi and his band of co-conspirators climbed up to Jerusalem. Rather than slip into the city unannounced, Jesus did something strange. He told a couple of his disciples to go to a particular place and retrieve a donkey for him to ride into the city. Jesus turned his face toward a city that kills prophets, stones truth-tellers, and executes troublemakers. With a deep sigh, he steeled himself, mounted the humble beast, and clip-clopped toward the Kidron Valley. When the Jerusalemites saw Jesus approaching, they erupted in excitement. They began stripping off their cloaks, spreading them across the road. The crowd whacked branches off trees and laid them across Jesus' path. As if this weren't enough pomp and ceremony, the crowd broke into a Passover song. All four gospel writers include this narrative, each with their own twist. Matthew's version says that the, proce the procession turns the whole city into turmoil. The Greek word for turmoil is the root for the English word seismic. The city trembled. The city trembled as Jesus approaches. 
The story begins with great expectations, which are easy to miss. Jesus has just been in Bethany, close to Jerusalem, where he resurrected his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus' eyes have barely adjusted to the sunlight, and his story has spread throughout the region. Here in this story, the crowd react, their brains bathe in dopamine. They begin to predict how God will act in their lives based on the way that God acted before. He will intervene again. He will work a miracle. He will expel the occupiers and resurrect God's people in God's holy city. The palm branches signaled the crowd's high expectations. A symbol largely lost on those of us who are separated from the culture and chronology of the story. Jewish history told of a man named Judas Maccabeus, a freedom fighter who entered Jerusalem 200 years prior to Jesus. As he approached, people waved palm branches and sang hymns. When Judas finally arrived, he defeated the Syrian king, recaptured the temple, expelled the pagans, and reigned for a century before the Romans took back the city. God had saved his people from an occupier once before when an uncommon man trotted into town. With a new sheriff seemingly on the horizon, their dopamine systems kicked in, and they began predicting another turnover, another takeover. Their song declared, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a song that you sang at the beginning of Passover. Even the donkey plays a role in elevating expectations as it harkens back to an image from Zechariah, the prophet, a prophetic passage that many of these Jerusalemites would have heard before. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. That night... Around dinner tables, across Jerusalem, the Jews likely discussed the day in hushed voices. Could this be the king we've been waiting for? He was riding on a donkey after all. By the time Jesus mounted that donkey, and descended into town, their dopamine system would have been in overdrive. I mean, I couldn't have done better than this guy. That's why I didn't want to just borrow from him. I just wanted you to hear how he describes the entrance into Jerusalem. But this morning, I actually have two questions for you that are extremely important. The first question is, is Jesus 
your Savior? Is Jesus your Savior? Because being saved from our sins is more than religiosity. Jesus being your Savior is more than to what denomination do you belong, whether you are Anglican or Baptist or whatever else. The question is, is Jesus your Savior? Is the death of Jesus of such high value to you that every knee bows down and every tongue confesses? I can imagine that there be many people who may be coming to church for years and years and have not yet received Jesus as the Savior of their lives. They have not come to the cross and recognize what God has done for us. Who gives his son, his eternal, ever-loving son, to die on a cross like a common criminal so that his blood would pay for the sins of the very ones for whom he was dying and who nailed him to the cross? What God does that? but a loving, merciful God who substitutes his son for us or substitutes us for him. So God dies so that you can have life. And that has nothing to do with religiosity or piousness or anything like that. It is about an encounter with a God that so loved you that he sacrificed his son, nailed him to a cross by love, and allowed his blood to be shed in payment for your sin. Have you received that message? And what effect has it had in your life? Is Jesus your Savior? Not just an iconic individual in a window. Is Jesus your Savior? Have you bowed down before him? Have you accepted his death in payment for your sins? Does it have value in your family? Does it have value in your life? If you have not made Jesus yet your Savior, you must do that today. Because salvation is present before you this very day. And all you have to do is receive the mercy, the love of God present in his son. And you just need to acknowledge him, receive him, and acknowledge that he died for you. So my first question today, as Jesus enters Jerusalem to be sacrificed, is he your Savior? Is He your Savior? The second question I have for you, is He your King? Because conceivably, a lot of people will call Jesus Savior, but they won't follow Him. They won't obey Him. They don't serve Him. They don't worship Him. They are saved because they went to an altar call one day but that soon got forgotten into the emotionalism of the moment. 
when truly making him, making him your king means that you follow him, you obey his word in your life. Is Jesus your king? To, for him to be king, you must remove your own crown from your own heads, your own attitude of potency, your own attitude that you can handle all things, that you have it all under control, that it's all by your power, that crown must be dropped off so that he becomes king in your home, so that he becomes king in your life, so that he becomes king in everything you do. You are a follower, a disciple of the real king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Is Jesus your king? Is he your CEO? Is he your general? Is Jesus the boss of your life? Those are two questions I want you to consider as the Lamb of God rides into Jerusalem and as he is proclaimed king. Is he your savior? And is he your king? If he is your king, and truly you can claim that Jesus is Savior and King of your life, then follow Him. Follow Him, serve Him, and reflect Him to the world because the worst thing that can happen is that we Christians make the claim of Jesus being Lord and King, but we don't project it to the world. How can we ask others to receive him as Lord when we ourselves are not living like he is Lord. That is called in my book and in scripture hypocritical. If he's not the king and Lord of your life, you cannot ask others to come and join that band of disciples. Is he your savior that took away the cross from you and put it upon himself? And is he the king that invites you to take your own cross and follow him? That is what I want you to consider today as we celebrate Palm Sunday and begin the journey toward a very holy week. Think about it. Make a decision. Who do you follow and who are you loyal to? God loves you. He loved you so much that he did not spare his son. He was willing to let his son die one of the most miserable deaths of the time. So that you who deserve that death then and today can have eternal life. And it's a moment in time in which you cry out to him and turn your heart over to him. And he becomes your see. We don't need teachers. The world has had plenty of teachers in all religions. 
what we need is a savior. What we need is a savior. There's no amount of teaching can take away our sins. But a savior has paid the price that would have cost you your sins. We need Jesus. Jesus.